Welcome to Gravedigger Radio Podcast, broadcasting live from the afterlife. Welcome to Gravedigger Radio Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to be digging into some of the true crime parts of the werewolf legends, things that we mentioned a little bit on the last episode. We're going to talk about some of the true crime stuff, some of the horror side, and some of just the generally ooky spooky tales from actual history. Yeah, man, you keep the ooky over there to yourself. I've called this one Werewolves of Legend, not London. So, Zach, with the last episode, you kind of tapped into my wild side a little bit and inspired me to see if I could find any historical accounts of actual werewolves. And wouldn't you know it, there are quite a few. I've decided to run through several of these in chronological order. So bear with me. The first one goes back to really the mythological time in Ireland. And I'm throwing this one in a little bit just for me. Cahoolan. Does that name ring a bell? I mean, I'm trying to think. Wasn't the uh, the Tommy Boy, the auto parts, wasn't that Cahoolan or Calhoun or something like that? I don't know. You've never seen Tommy Boy? It's been 20 years. <laughs> Shit, that's a classic, man. Well... Cahoolan is the name of a, a, a mythical Irish hero. He's like the mythical Irish hero. Now, I'm going out uh, on a limb here to make a case for him being a werewolf. Um, I did a master's in history in my college days, focusing on medieval history. And my thesis was about the Christian conversion of pagan peoples, especially in Northern Europe and Ireland. As a part of that research, I focused a lot on reading some ancient Celtic mythology. And the foremost character in what is known as the Ulster Cycle of Tales is Cahoolan. I'm not saying that perfectly correct. It's like a Cahoolan. I'm doing the best I can. Now, that name, Cahoolan, translates to the Hound of Cahoolan. His given name was Satanta, but gained the name Cahoolan after slaying a famous chieftain's guard dog. Satanta was a young boy at the time and felt remorseful to the great chief, but he had to defend himself when attacked by the famously vicious Hound. Which raises my question, was he bitten in this combat? Yeah, that's that's the one thing that, you know, we talked about this last episode. Mm-hmm. None of the legends or anything that we came across through all the different histories and different cultures mentioned anything about becoming a werewolf via bite, which is very popular in modern right. media. Right, we see that all the time now. That's like the werewolf mythology now, is you contract lycanthropy by being bitten or wounded, at least, by a werewolf, and then surviving the attack, and then... Next full moon comes around and poof, you're a werewolf. Right, and I'm really curious as to where that came from because everything we talked about last episode was, you know, you put on a pelt or a belt. Right. Or different, you know, packs with the devil. Or an ointment. Or an ointment, your your magical KY jelly. (laughs) But nowhere in the mythology did it mention a werewolf attack, actually, other than the Norse mythology side of things where Mm -hmm. the, the sun slayed 11 men. There's not even really mentions of... yeah of being attacked by a werewolf. Yeah. Uh, We'll see. I have some histories coming up. And again, the modern mythology doesn't play out so well. Anyway, getting back to our story, this chief, Kulin, was angry, of course, at Satanta um, because he had slain his famous fearsome beast. And he was kind of amazed that this child, this adolescent child, was able to do such a thing. But after Satanta agreed to begin to become his new guard dog in the animal's place, he allowed Satanta to join his band of fighting men. From that moment onward, he was known as the Hound of Coolin. See, now I'm thinking of, like, Game of Thrones, the Hound. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, you know, that's probably where he stole that from, honest to goodness. Now, no one 
maybe since the beginning of time, has claimed that Cahulin was a werewolf. So I may be the first. But I think I can make a case for this if you're willing to hear me out. Lay it on me. Okay. Well, Cahulin went on to become Ulster's greatest warrior and definitely the foremost mythological character in, in Irish folk history. He was famous for, get this, his warp spasms that he would enter into in battle. Listeners, if you want to read more, uh, please pick up a copy of Thomas Kinsella's translation of the ancient epic Irish saga, The Toyn Bull which translates into English as the, the Cattle Raid of Cooley. So when you say he would go into these spasms before a battle, mm-hmm. was he having like a, like he'd get so excited he just like yes. had a seizure or something? Yes. Um, I'll, I'll read you a translation from Kinsella's work. Quote, The first warp spasm seized Cahulin and made him into a monstrous thing, hideous and shapeless, unheard of. His shanks and his joints, every knuckle and angle and organ from head to foot, shook like a tree in the flood or a reed in the stream. His body made a furious twist inside his skin, so that his feet and shins switched to the rear, and his heels and calves switched to the front. On his head, the temple sinews stretched to the nape of his neck, each mighty, immense, measureless knob as big as the head of a month-old child. He sucked one eye so deep into his head that a wild crane couldn't probe onto his cheek out of the depths of his skull. The other eye fell out along his cheek, his mouth weirdly distorted, his cheek peeled back from his jaws until the gullet appeared, his lungs and his liver flapped in his mouth and throat. His lower jaw struck the upper in a lion-killing blow, and fiery flakes, large as a ram's fleece, reached his mouth from his throat. The hair of his head twisted like the tangle of a red thornbrush stuck in a gap. If a royal apple tree, with all its kingly fruit, were shaken above him, scarce an apple would reach the ground, but each would be spiked on a bristle of his hair as it stood up on his scalp with rage." That's a lot to take in. Well, <laughs> all I have to say is, what the actual fuck? Yeah, so according to your opinion, was was due to werewolf? I don't, I'm kind of just trying to picture this shit show creature in my head. Imagine of, facing that on the battlefield. Of like one eye sucked way back in its head, one eye hanging down on its face. Yeah. And like, so, but His honestly, mouth all, <laughs> Right. <laughs> a little bad but trans little spasm there myself I was say, I'm terrified by that noise you just made <laughs> well you know my my question is I know you know in, in Nordic tales the berserkir were known right. for consuming mushrooms before battle and that was what kind of helped elevate them to like uh, these beastly status were they shrewman that's how they got there uh, yeah that okay. was so like that's you know the bite in their shields and everything they yeah. were on on types of mushrooms I'm inclined to ask, were the warriors around him on mushrooms? Because that's the only way you're going to conjure a creature like that. I don't know. You know, the ancient Celts were famed, and the Gauls as well, for fighting buck-ass naked, mm-hmm. painting themselves up with a body paint, the blue paint that you've seen, like in Braveheart and all that. That was a thing. Yeah. They often rode around in chariots, so Cahulin himself probably would have had a charioteer driving him around the battlefield while he was just going buck-wild hacking on people left and right in his warp spasm form. Yeah, I, well, so now I'm picturing that they've, like, duct-taped two swords to a guy with epilepsy and, like, flash a strobe light in front of him, and he's just flailing about now at this point. Maybe. You know, the part about his his legs reversing, because, you know, the hind legs 
uh, you have a, of a dog. Kinda yeah. Have that reverse. Kind of like anterograde kind of yeah. stance. You're the medical guy. You tell me. <laughs> I I mean, you know, when he first told me, I, th- I was like, okay, well, he just had epilepsy and he would just get so fired up before battle that he'd basically work yeah. himself into a seizure. But I've never seen anybody do something like that having a seizure. I mean, you you know, you talk about all the joints and everything locking up and, and convulsing. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. But nobody's eyes have, like, sunk back into their head and their mouth, like, became a yeah. gaping maw. The eye thing is weird and, the, you know, the, the whole throat thing and his his, his mouth and the, See, the, the hair with the standing on bristled ends. And I, I know you've done all this great research and trying to make this, like, a an academic kind of deep dive. Uh-huh. But now I'm totally picturing the husband from Beetlejuice. With the with the giant mouth and the two eyes and the like, they've sucked back. Yeah, well, that's, uh, we could throw that in. That's kind of what I'm picturing, yeah. honestly. Oh well, um, you could go down that road with me or not. But honestly, uh, the the Ulster cycle of tales is a great bit of, of epic saga history for Ireland. Kind of can't get away from it if you study Irish history at all. Good stuff. Read up on it, and you know, remember some madman who once said on a podcast that maybe Cahulin was a werewolf. I like it though. I mean, you know, is now is that. How much historical documentation is there around Cahulan? Well, again, this would have been written down actually by Christian scribes, Irish Christian scribes who were interested in preserving their own mythological history. Now, was he, was this he would have around... been a tale passed down for thousands of years by word of mouth? Okay, that was that was my big question there. Yeah, you know, in our in our culture, in our young country, we have things like George Washington and chopping down the cherry trees and bullshit like that. Or right, whatever that's worth. It's kind of the same sort of thing. But it's, it's a great series of stories if you ever want to look into it. Look into the Ulster cycle. Okay, moving ahead big time in history, a couple thousand years. And pardon my poor pronunciation of these, these French names and places, but I want to talk about Gilles Garnier. We'll see that a lot of these tales of true werewolves come from France and Germany. Um, all of them are in around the 16th century. And I, I, I kind of, as I was reading these stories, I kind of had to wonder... If they had some kind of paranoia going on, akin to the witch craze that took over the British Isles and, and North America around about the same time. Well, when I was reading through doing the research for just, you know, the basic mythology of the werewolf, mm-hmm. that was one of the things I came across, that there was almost like a parallel werewolf trial right, going on at the same time as the witch trials were going on. Right. And I, I, I may be misremembering, but I think it was somewhere around 30,000 people that were killed for being convicted of being a werewolf. I wouldn't doubt that. In fact, um, I didn't have this in my notes. I don't want to, didn't want to go into it deeply in the podcast, but because of this case we're about to speak of, like the local magistrates were issuing issuing orders telling people, you know, the huntsmen and people who went kind of outside the cities into the wilds for hunting or whatever, that if they came across werewolves to slay them and bring them in, like that was a uh, sanctioned activity they could participate in did you ever come across anything you know i I didn't dive into that because the research i was doing was just about the mythology Mm. but did you ever find anything about like a test for being a werewolf um a test no but they were um you know brought into confession by inquisitorial staff that would you know torture them and um have them confess their sins and all that i think the last case i'll speak of today they actually asked the fellow, okay, if you're a werewolf, we'll do it. Wolf out. Let's see it. And and (laughs) we'll get to that in a minute about how that played out. But that's as far as I could get as like anyone actually being tested. Because see, all I can think of now, though, is the uh, the scene from Monty Python, the Holy Grail, 
where it's like, you know, she's a witch, she's a witch, shall we burn her? Right, right. And it's like, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's a witch. <laughs> if this man weighs the same as a chihuahua, he's a, he's a werewolf. I know, yeah, I keep looking into these things and I'm thinking, you know, these Monty Python guys were just kind of riffing on real history. Like, they weren't far off. Right, no, they weren't. Some of the crazy stuff. And, you know, as a historian, I don't want to, like, belittle these people and the beliefs they had at the times. They were dealing with what they knew. They were dealing with the science they had to try to explain crazy stuff in their natural environment. So, you know, if I had been born in 1570, France, I probably would have thought the same things. Yeah. We're no better than they are. They were working with what they had at the time to try to explain crazy stuff that they came across. Yeah, but it's still fucking hilarious, some of the the tests they came up with and everything. Yeah, but it's dangerous because, you know, 500 years from now, they'll be looking at us and being like, oh, my God, what a bunch of morons. Right. No, I mean, you're you're absolutely (laughs) right. And that's and that's the one thing that we try to always do with this podcast is right. to judge things based on the time that we're viewing them. We try we do try to be good historians, right, with the information that we present and judge it based on that exact time period. Because I mean, obviously, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right. And we we enjoy the stories and we enjoy the, the, the tales and we try to present them in an entertaining fashion. But I don't ever want to like talk down about people and and their life experiences from from the past. That's what I'm here for. Sure, <laughs> let's talk more about. Gilles. Uh, Gilles was a hermit living in the Franche-Comte region of eastern France who was active outside the town of Dole. And this account, Zachary, is particularly good as we have a surviving, contemporary, primary historical account from 1574 of his arrest and trial at court in Dole. Well, hot damn. Do I need to put some newspaper down underneath of you as excited as you are about that? This is the sort of thing that historians get all hot and bothered about. I also found a recent academic paper by archaeologists Luc Giacotti and Brigitte Rochandelet, who excavated Giles's hermitage at a place known as St. Bono. They did not find any grisly remains. This is, this is not the same Bono from you two, right? No, this is B-O-N-N-O-T. Oh, okay, just making not sure. Bono, Bono. Okay, just making sure. Yeah. Now, they did not find any grisly remains from a werewolf's den, However, but some pottery shards and sunken wall foundations, you know, the sort of stuff that gets archaeologists all hot and bothered. But regardless, this all adds up to a well-documented case, historically speaking. So you may ask, what was Jules up to? So, Jason, what was Jules up to? Basically eating children. Oh, well, shit, that's not good. So, listeners, beware. I know you're big-time fans of our podcast, but you may want to switch this one off if you can't handle a little bit of the grisly, gory underbelly of history. But if you make it through, you get a gold star. Right. So from here on out, it gets pretty daggum gruesome. And apparently, these sorts of gore-filled stories were all the rage back in the day. And the writers of these accounts took great delight in capturing every last drop of blood and viscera. So gird your loins, and let's continue. My loins are girded. Please okay. continue. We'll give a three-second girding of the loins check. Okay, if you're still here, you're, you're in for the haul. Giles and his wife, Apolline, moved away from society into a hermitage in the nearby woods. A little bit unsure as to why, but they were obviously quite poor. Giles struggled to feed his family, and in 1572, he took his first victim, a young girl of about ten whom he devoured the arms and legs of before he lovingly took the remaining flesh back to his wife and kids to share. Well, that was sweet. Kind of like a uh, to-go box kind of thing. I'm thinking, hey, honey, what's for dinner? Oh, I don't know. I'll figure something out. (laughs) Hamburger helper. 
God. Jules always targeted children, both young boys and girls, and almost always ate some of them on the spot before taking home the rest. He preyed on several children this way before he got a little bit sloppy and was spotted by some local men who chased him down and apprehended him, and they also witnessed his transformation from wolf back into man. During his confession, which included torture at the hands of inquisitors, he confessed everything. Gilles had learned to become a werewolf when he encountered a specter one night in the woods. The figure told Gilles that he could help him become a more efficient, a better hunter, and presented him with an ointment. <laughs> the ointment was how Gilles could transform into a wolf and prowl the woods. In the end, he confessed to four child murders, cannibalism, witchcraft, and tax evasion. Well, fuck me, Dad. What about the tax evasion part? Oh, I thought I'd get you there. My sweet summer child, there was no tax evasion. I just threw that in there to see if I could trip you up a little I bit. I really, really, I'm kind of disappointed because I really wanted that to be there, just tack that on. I thought it worked because he buggered off to live in the woods, right? That makes sense. So they were like, there. oh, he's not paying his taxes for the woods and education. <laughs> no, no, no tax evasion. Gilles uh, was burned alive at the stake in 1574, accused of being a loop garou. Which oh, okay. is French for Wolfman. Which I'm really curious as to how, I know we talked about it last time, is how Loop Garou came, became Rougarou. It's obviously some kind of a vernacularization of probably the French term for Wolfman. And I'm, I'm wondering too, though, if maybe that it became more popularized through uh, Cajun, Cajun French legend. Oh, or maybe well. Or maybe even Canadian French legend yeah. as those things were coming over. From France, you know, Loop Guru to Rougarou is... It's, it's too close not to be some kind of bastardization of well, the original French. Especially you throw in like a Creole Cajun accent. Right. Loop becomes Rue very fast. Yeah. And it's easier to say. Yeah. Which is a lot of reason why things change that way. And it sounds more fun. Yeah, I mean, you knew some Japanese. We both spent some time in Japan. So how many other words would change phonetically just because it was easier? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, moving on. Werewolf number three on our list. Zach, do you recall... The most famous werewolf of all. It couldn't be Peter Stube, could it? Sing it with me. Peter Stube. Yes. Also known as Peter Stump with two Ps Mm -hmm. or Peter Stumpf with an F at the end. Okay, this is clearly a a German A German, yeah. (laughs) This information comes from The Damnable Life and Death of Stube Peter, published in London. Here we go with the London connection again. They must be really hot on werewolves over there. Werewolf in London, duh. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, published in London in 1590 by George Bors. According to The Damnable Life, and I quote, A true discourse, declaring the damnable life and death of one Stu Peter, a most wicked sorcerer, who in the likeness of a wolf committed many murders, continuing this devilish practice 25 years, killing and devouring men, women, and children, who for the same fact was taken and executed the 31st of October, last past, in the town of Bedburg, near the city of Cologne in Germany. Hmm. 31st of October. Yeah, I know. How perfect is that? And I mean, I think he kind of, I, I hate to say this, but there is kind of the trend of, they start they start by preying upon kids. Yeah. I know with, you know, with Peter Stube, it was mostly just kind of kids, like by the roadside, he was like, hey, come help me with this thing that I've got. Uh-huh. And then they would kind of bugger off into the, the tree line or the bushes or whatever, and he would just eat them. He would just eat them right there. In the immortal words of Ron Burgundy, this escalated quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really did. 
And that was the thing is it was he really didn't have much rhyme or reason to how he picked his victims. He was definitely a killer of opportunity. He got there. Let me let me go back to the damnable life and keep reading. Um, anyway, either way, he had a, about a 25 year run of vicious carnage for old Peter. And it's it's hard to catch him because, right, he could transform himself into the disguise of a wolf. And that was his ingenious plan all along. Because, you see, Peter was already a rotten, no-good SOB to begin with. So the devil decided to appear to himself in person. Good old, good old Satan. And he asked Peter what gift that he might ask of him. And Peter, quote, requested that at his pleasure he might work his malice upon men, women, and children, that same old cadence, men, women, and children, in the shape of some beast, whereby he might live without dread of danger or life, and unknown to be the executor of any enterprise which he meant to commit. So, basically, he wanted to get away with murder. Rampant murder. Yeah, did you ever find out why he was such just a miserable asshole? I just as psychopath, sociopath. I mean, I yeah. At, you know, especially at that time with mental health being so poorly understood. Yeah. Kind of reading through, I believe there was some evidence to suggest that he was actually a schizophrenic as well. And, you know, that was kind of where, you know, and, and definitely I'm, I'm a big proponent of mental health, not trying to miss, you know, to malign anybody with schizophrenia. Right. But I think there was some evidence of schizophrenia and that was where the idea, oh, this isn't me doing these things. I've mm. been I've been gifted by the devil. I've spoken with the devil yeah. and he's given me the gift to do this. So now I can kind of thing. Very well could be. After this, Satan then fashioned for Peter a girdle that he could take on and off, transforming him into a massive wolf. So when he was done with killing things, he could slip it off again and go right back to his day job. Going back to the first part of this, with the girdle, I just picture somebody just throwing it on and out there running around on all fours. Yeah. Thinking that everyone else perceives them as being a wolf. <laughs> and everybody's just like, the fuck is that? <laughs> what is he doing? Well, apparently not only would he transform back and forth at will, but then... He would kind of go out around town knowing he had committed these horrendous murders, like speak to the families or tip his cap to the ladies of whose husbands he had just devoured and just be a real jerk about it and like almost like flaunt his ability to murder at will and not be caught. I do. You know, I mean, we're, we're not a true crime podcast here, but I do wonder how he evaded being caught so, so much because I, I almost picture... Like, you know, just the way his sheer brazenness being... You remember the right. old cartoons, like, when the cat would eat the bird and it would, like, burp and, like, a feather would come out? Right. Like, that's exactly what I'm picturing with that's this guy. That's literally him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, wiping the blood off his mouth <laughs> and being like, I haven't seen your husband around lately, man. Yeah. <clears throat> Got something in my teeth here. Oh, wait, it's part of his, you know, his skin. Yeah. So, what pleasures did Peter get into? In short, everything you can imagine. At first, he was content to murder those that he fell out with. Like, like the local men who he feuded with kind of began disappearing if they wandered too far from the town. And taking a liking to grisly murder, he began to kill at will, taking anyone who he chanced upon in the fields for sport. Next, he descended into pursuing his more carnal desires and began assaulting young women, and after having his way with them, killing them after his lust was satiated. Peter was also fond of mutilating pregnant women, as he found their unborn children particularly delectable. Oh, man. Human veal. I, I warned you all, all right? Oh, God. That's awful. Listen, I'm just I'm just reading from the damnable the damnable life and history of Peter's too. Yeah, here, so no kidding. Don't throw me under the bus. Needless to say, Satan was getting a pretty nice return on his investment. <laughs> yeah, for certain. <laughs> the devil then presented him with a beautiful wife, 
named Catherine, who not only became his lover, but also his accomplice in all this murder and rape. Worst of all, though, she was the town gossip. So do you think that, you know, her being the town gossip, do you think actually kind of helped Peter Stube in a sense? Like she could spread misinformation to kind of help keep him from being yeah. the uh, people, people looking at them. You know, if she's known as a town gossip, people yeah, go to and, her. In like national security studies, you would call that like a disinformation campaign. Exactly. She's a disinformation agent. Um, at some point, Peter also had a daughter, Belle, whose grace and beauty was unrivaled. So naturally, he grew to lust for her as well and began committing incest with her. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, other than that, he also produced a son who was reputed to be a fine, beautiful, comely, innocent boy who Peter then took for a walk in the woods, bit open his skull, and slurped up his brains. I mean, if that is if that is remotely true, I'm actually very surprised by that because that is a shit ton of bite force to be able to bite open somebody's skull. Well, he was empowered by the devil. Well, I mean, but to get his mouth around the skull to yeah. actually bite it open would be just kind of insanity. And, you know, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this information. <laughs> but that's why if you go to hide a body, everybody's like, oh, I'm going to you know, drop a body at a pig farm. You uh-huh. have to break the skull because the kids, or because kids. What kind of kids? <laughs> <laughs> because the pigs cannot get their mouth around the, the human head to actually chew it up. Right. So the skull is like the thickest, most dense bone the bone density in our body? Yeah. Okay. Again, you're the medical guy, so you tell me. And well, I, mean, it's, I don't know if it's necessarily the most dense, but it's just the shape of it. It would be hard for an animal to get its mouth all the way around it to actually crack it. Oh, okay, I see. Just because it's too big. It's just that dome shape. You know, that's uh-huh. what, like pigs can't eat a human skull because they just can't fit their mouth around it to actually chew on it. Crack it open. Yeah. Okay. A good bit of information there, Zachary. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I cannot confirm or deny how I know that information. Okay, so these events went on for years, and the community was absolutely terrified to leave town or tend their herds in the fields. Men began forming parties and patrol the area regularly with hunting dogs. They at last cornered Peter in wolf form in 1589. When he knew he was trapped, he slipped off the girdle and stood upright as a man, thinking he'd confuse his pursuers. Was he up there trying to seduce them? Like he slips off his girdle like, hey. Oh, I'm not a wolf at all. I'm just a regular (laughs) Joe out here doing stuff. Of course, the men were keen-eyed hunters, and they saw him transform. And they they testified as eyewitnesses against him. So they, they captured him and brought him to justice. Again, reading from The Damnable Life. After he had some space been imprisoned, the magistrates found out through due examination of the matter that his daughter, Stube Bell, and his gossip, Catherine Trompen, were both accessory to diverse murders committed, who for the same, as also for their lewd life otherwise committed, was arraigned and with Stube Peter condemned and there are several judgments pronounced the 28th of October, 1589. So this family is kind of like the Firefly clan from, uh, you know, House of a Thousand Corpses and the Devil's Rejects and everything. To where They're the all whole, in on it. To where the whole family's just monsters. I wonder why he killed the son then. I wonder if he had some aversion to the killings. I don't know. I mean, in his sick mind, you know, maybe he thought the son was some kind of threat to his patriarchy. Maybe his son would start getting with the hot daughter <laughs> I I, well, some eastern kentucky stuff right here. i mean seriously though you know that that's a valid point right there is that he's worried that the son is gonna you know be horning in on his action yeah i don't know just pure speculation it's disgusting to think about but i mean it's it's you know, a valid question yeah, we, i think we go to some dark places on the podcast but such is the human psyche especially an extremely sick one like this guy okay where was i so on the 28th of october 1589 that is to say, Stu Peter, as principal malefactor, was judged first to have his body laid on a wheel, 
and with red-hot burning pincers, and ten several places to have the flesh pulled off from the bones. After that, his legs and arms to be broken with a wooden axe or hatchet, afterward to have his head struck from his body, then to have his carcass burned to ashes. So was this wheel, was it the wheel kind of like the breaker's wheel to where it would like break your bones and everything, or was it just supposed to like he go over these hot pokers as it kind of went around? I think so. Um, we have some um, woodcuts. Um, it was kind of an art form in the 16th century of these artistic depictions of events. And we have existing woodcuts of his, his life and torture. And it looks like he's strapped to a large, almost like wagon wheel type device. And I don't know if this was like rotated almost as if like a, a pig on a spigot can kind of spend over hot coals to, to roast him as they tortured him. But he was strapped to this thing and it was man sized, you know, so he could be laid out, flayed out properly. The worst Ferris wheel of them all. <clears throat> yeah, and, and rotated around as they took their turns torturing him to death. The good news <laughs> is that his daughter Belle and his wife Gossip, Catherine, got off much easier. They only got being burned to death, burned to ashes as their sentence. And these, these executions took place on the 31st of October, in the year of our Lord, 1589. The media of the time ran with this. As we mentioned, the woodcuts were popular, and the uh, written history of it also was circulated around Europe. So this was an extremely well-known case, the, the, the sensational media of its time. I'll, I'll be sure to post um, some of the um, images on our Facebook page, so dear listeners, please go there if you want to see the, the woodcuts, and I'll maybe even try to get a, a few pictures of the historical account put up there if, if that's possible. Now, when you say a woodcut, mm -hmm. I'm assuming you mean it would just like a, you know the equivalent of a photograph, essentially, to where they would just carve these events mm -hmm. into wood. Uh, the one I have, yeah, it's carved into wood, and then it can it can be used almost for printing as like a relief, right? So you could dip it in ink and stamp it. Okay. These still exist, and you have a lot of this stuff from the period. Not not only the the Peter Stube case, but a lot of like werewolf cases were depicted in this manner, and it's, it was sort of their, their their print journalism medium of, of the time. Honestly, an astonishing amount of this exists that, that you can look at today. And the Peter Stube, it kind of represents his entire life story. Like you've got the early crimes and then the escalation and then the hunt for the werewolf that was loose in this area and then his capture and his torture at the hands of his inquisitors. So it, it's kind of a, almost like comic book form. Like it doesn't have panels, but it's like this progression of visual media that it starts early on and then progresses throughout the story until his execution, which is the highlight, of course. So that's 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 the lion's share of the woodcut of him on this wheel being ripped to pieces, then hacked to pieces, and then burned alive. Also, it, it's crazy to me to think, as somebody who does a lot of artwork myself and uh -huh. does some wood burning, the amount of time somebody took to make these things and make these recreations mm -hmm. of this event. Yeah, I guess you got to deal with like the, the mediums available to you <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, the uh, last werewolf case that I wanted to highlight is, comes to us much more recently because I didn't want to spend all my time in the 16th century because you totally could. You could do a podcast that just deal, dealt with like 16th and 17th century werewolf and witchcraft cases. Oh, yeah, because, you know, like we mentioned earlier, the trials were so prolific. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm wondering as to why we know so much about the witch trials. Yeah. But I didn't even know anything about werewolf trials until researching this topic. Right. And it seems to be kind of centered in, in Germany and France. Whereas we're much more recipients of like British Isles 
you know, in Western European culture. So we had the witch thing going on that caught our attention. But at the same time, like simultaneously, the werewolf trials were going on and people were actively out hunting for these creatures. I wonder what was going on during that time period to where there was so much religious persecution, essentially, because, I mean, Mm -hmm. all this does have a tie to religion in a sense Mm -hmm. that spawned these these witch hunts, these werewolf hunts, those kinds of things. Yeah. And again, you know, I don't want to uh, speak down on like people in history, but we have our own paranoias today that we act crazy about. Oh, for sure. So so let's not let's not delude ourselves and thinking that we're, there's so much more enlightened than these people from four or five hundred you know, years ago. But it was kind of a mass hysteria, a paranoia that was rampant in the culture. And, you know, at the time, they didn't have our modern science to explain things. They didn't have the modern psychology that would explain psychopaths, sociopaths, um, serial killers. You know, that's a very modern term. I mean, within our lifetime, serial killers have come to be recognized as a thing. I don't think the term serial killer was even used until like the 1960s, 1970s. Right, right. Um, I think it was coined because of Ted Bundy. Right. The, the FBI coined the term and they brought in a, an academic psychologist to research like who these people are that perform these re- repeated killings over and over and why they did it. The history of like psychological profiling is very recent, 70s and 80s. I mean, the TV show Mindhunter. Right. It's exactly about the history of how that was developed. The two FBI agents, kind of like a young whippersnapper and then an old grizzled veteran who was all kind of skeptical. But then they brought in um, a psychologist in the show. She's named Dr. Carr. <laughs> hey. But I don't think that was her real name. To help them develop the theory. And they, they brought her in. And again, you know, it was very against the grain in the FBI of the 60s and 70s to bring in an academic type. Because it's kind of like the other end of like the political spectrum. But she was doing research on this exact topic. And so they've got all their minds together and finally developed the idea of the serial killer and someone who repeatedly kills for whatever reason and how to track them so that they could like track these people all across the United States and see similarities in the way they would kill and the why they would kill and then begin to develop a way to track them down and bring them to justice. Well, and not to go too much down a true crime rabbit hole and get too mm-hmm. off topic here, but talking about you know why so many serial killers went unapprehended was because, like I said before, the 70s and the Ted Bundy case, mm-hmm. police departments and jurisdictions did not share information. Yeah, yeah was, that too, that too. There was a lot of, it was almost like competition between the different groups and the different uh, police departments. Right, right. You would kill somebody in one state, and then a killer that knew what they were doing would go to another state, mm-hmm. and it would be considered two completely separate incidences, right. and the two groups would not talk to one another, and it's like well, they wouldn't right. track information. And there's some you know human failures in that, too, because you would want to defend your turf and research your cases. I wouldn't want somebody to take my work from me. You know, Even the, the mundane bullcrap I get into at the university on the day-to-day, it's mine. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and I know how to do it, and I'm going to do it the right way. And that was the big problem with it, and that's why, a lot, of, like I said, a lot of people didn't, you know, they weren't captured. Right. And so back in this day, they didn't even have that. They hadn't even gotten that far. There they didn't even know what a serial killer was. There wasn't even the idea of like a database or records right. or anything. They were all treated as isolated, you know, one-time incidences. And they didn't understand that these things were like psychological issues. Again, a lot of these explanations we've run across have been because of the devil. Right. Yeah. And that was, right. that was no, that's entirely to wrong, because how do you really explain a sociopath, a sociopath to our modern mind? Like we can't cope with that. Right. If you want to really give yourself a mind job, there's, there's a great book I read probably about 10 years ago called The Sociopath Next Door, written by a, a psychologist. And she explains that, you know, about one out of every 20, about 5 percent of the general population 
is a legit sociopath. They're great social chameleons, so you don't know they're there. So next time you're in the office, you know, Monday morning, you're hanging out by the water cooler or whatever it is you do in your daily, look around, count the 20, and realize that probably one of those people ain't right. And if everyone else checks out, the sociopath is you. It could be you, and you might not know it. Yeah. And most of them are so adept at mimicking social, pro, appropriate social behavior and blending in. And, of course, most of them don't go to the point where they're like described as a werewolf who's feeding on children. Uh, most of them just blend in and go about their their normal lives and don't act out in any way, but they don't have the same way of interacting with reality as we do. And to be fair, most people in positions of power, like most very successful businessmen and politicians, yes, are sociopaths, like I, textbook. Right. And again, we're talking about a spectrum, so it's like more or less sociopathic, but you are correct. The people that often ascend to amass a great deal of wealth or power in this lifetime have those kind of cutthroat practices and they don't even know it's wrong. Right. It doesn't even resonate to them that, that what they're doing is not acceptable. Right. They, they, don't, they don't feel the remorse or the guilt that would go along with eating a, a 10-year-old girl's legs. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, we, we can't say for certain that the people in these positions of power don't do that. But well, I'm, I'm not willing to go there, but um, that's the case. Um, if you want to go down that road, um, um, by all means, the Internet is... <laughs> Open and available. I'm just saying that I don't want. To, I, I kind of want to excuse the people in the history that come up with maybe outlandish to our ears and our sensibilities these outlandish experiences. Um, this that's just their way of dealing with it, and we've we've not gotten that much farther. Let's 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 go ahead to our our, our last um, um, werewolf on the list, and I'm going to be speaking about Manuel Blanco Romasanta, and this person is recognized as Spain's first acknowledged serial killer. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So if you find, and there have been some movies made about him, uh, probably in Spain, so you may have to dive deep to find those. And Manuel's story is quite strange. His birth in 1809 was very difficult, and he barely survived. Um, He was so small and misshapen that the doctors doubted his survival and misgendered him. He was raised as a girl for the first six years of his life. And he never quite fully developed and remained small and effeminate for the rest of his life. The estimations say that he was probably between four foot six inches and four eleven. Okay, so you know, little bitty tiny guy. Yeah, kind of a, a diminutive person. Yeah. It's always it's always the little people, man. <laughs> well, you think he had a Napoleon complex? Yeah, or he something? might have. I don't know. He did marry, actually, um later in life, but his wife passed away in eighteen thirty three. And after that it starts to get a little weird. After the passing of his wife, Manuel began a strange new life for himself. He began working as a traveling salesman and as a guide through the mountainous regions of Castile, Asturias, and Cantabria. I'm not familiar. Hey, I'm not even sure that I pronounced all that correctly. But the mountainous regions of Spain. And it was then that the killings began. He'd lure his victims into the mountains, you know, posing as his travel guide. I can get you through safely. (laughs) but then he would slaughter them in secrecy. He also then forged letters back to their relatives to cover his tracks. Well, I mean, this guy's you know, he's the size of a large raccoon. Of course he can <laughs> squeeze through, like, whatever bullshit mountain paths he's going through. Yeah, it kind of surprises me that he was able to, to carry out these murders, but, it, I mean, again, again, if you catch someone unaware, unawares, you know, in a vulnerable state, maybe even camping out for the night, you could do whatever. Yeah. So if he had the mind to commit these grisly murders, then he, he could definitely do so when he had them at the disadvantage of being up in the mountains at night. In total, he is believed to have murdered about 13 people in this manner. 
The remains that were linked to his murders were always horribly mutilated and difficult to identify even by close family members. Manuel was eventually caught because he kept the clothes and possessions from his victims and tried to resell them. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Really it, doubling down on his uh, criminal enterprise there, oh, isn't he? Oh, oh, my sweet summer child. It gets so much worse. Um, he also sold soap. Oh, no. Did he make the soap out of the bodies? I love you, Zach. <laughs> he did, didn't he? Oh, no. Now, now, mind you, dear listeners, I do not share my notes with Zach um, before the podcast because I like to catch his raw reaction. So, yes. Oh, no. He boiled the fat, fatty tissues down from his victims, created soap, and then sold them. So imagine you're a poor person in some market <clears throat> in Castile, Asturias, or Cantabria, and you're buying soap. From Manuel. Please tell me he called his business Bath and Body Works. <laughs> Bed Bath and Beyond. <laughs> Dead Bath and Beyond. <laughs> I think this is officially a point that the the podcast officially went to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is verified. This this isn't mythological information. This isn't current like lo- local urban myth kind of stuff. This, so this was he... verified that he was cooking them down into soap. If Jeffrey Dahmer was a hipster. Making his own soap. Mm. It'd be this guy right here. It's all natural. (laughs) (laughs) Is it good for the body? I mean, it'd have to be. Your body, perhaps not theirs, but it's good for your body. Oh, boy. And um, anyway, it was during his trial in 1853 that Manuel confessed to being a werewolf. I mean, at that point, fuck it, why not? Well, apparently this kind of worked out for him. Okay. He openly admitted to the killings. Hey, man, you know what? I was totally like, well, werewolfed out. And claimed that it's, you know, therefore he was not truly responsible because he was under a curse. He tried to use an insanity plea, essentially. Yes. Huh. He was under a curse, at least, that transformed him into a wolf. He had chanced upon two other werewolves in the mountains named Antonio and Don. (laughs) I shouldn't be laughing, right? I'm I'm, I'm not totally like on the highway to hell for this, but. You know, as hard as it is to meet people nowadays, even, what are the odds that you're going to meet two other werewolves? You know, did they have like werewolf grinder back then? And they're just like out there hooking up in the mountains somewhere. Uh, again, I have to ask my younger colleague here, what's grinder? It's a, uh, it's a hook, like a, well, I want to, I don't want to say hookup app. It's like a dating app. Okay. Kind of like Tinder. Okay. But for like the LGBT community. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, you have to throw a W in there <laughs> yeah, L- <laughs> because yeah. they were werewolves. And he claimed that they afflicted him with this curse. So now we're up into curse territory, right? Before we had ointments. <laughs> We had girdles, and now we've got a straight-on curse. Curse, okay. But still no disease. And so that they began hanging out in the mountains, and when they were hungry, hey, you know, they just eat people. Just have a snack. Right. So to prove this, the court, the court kind of called him out on his story, and they're like, right, so you're a werewolf, so whip it out. Let's see it. Like, transform. Like, prove it. The man will explain that it didn't work that way. The curse lasted only, how many years do you think, Zach? Just off the top of your head, how many years do you think that you were... Um, Cursed with werewolfism. Well, you can think of a number. Given every number that's come up in this podcast so far, I'm going to go with seven. How about 13? Oh, damn it, 13. Yeah. So Manuel could not wolf out in court on command because the curse lasted 13 years, and wouldn't you know it, it expired two weeks before his trial. I'll be damned. How yeah. convenient. Yep. At the end of the day, Manuel Romasanta was convicted for only nine killings after the other four were blamed on actual wolves. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the the Antonio and and Don did they ever or were they ever brought to trial or anything? Uh, we don't know anything more about Antonio and Don. Is there even any even reason to believe that these guys even existed? No, no. He could have been making this out of whole cloth right there on the, on the stand, you know, during his court case. Kind of spread the killings out a little bit and be like, no, no, it wasn't me. I right. was doing this. Because I'm the victim. Was, exactly. I was forced to do these things by these other two people in the, in the mountains. Right. So after hearing all that, you know, he went down for the nine killings and his execution was sentenced to be carried out by, by garrot. I've never heard of a execution by garrot. Garrotting. Yeah, I mean, usually you hear like an assassin like yeah. whipping a garrote and like sneak up behind you and choke you out, like and for the like people, a wire around your neck kind of thing. Yeah, for people that don't know what a garrote is, it was typically like a piece of piano wire mm-hmm. in between two wooden handles, and it was a device used for strangulation. Yeah, but you know, you hear about the guillotine all the time at that time, the headsman's axe, mm-hmm. but you don't ever really hear about garrote as a form of execution. Yeah, it's a thing, and again, in my in my my journeys <laughs> across the internet, which I don't recommend. Going down that road, you know, the reason you listen to this podcast is so we can get weird and sick on your behalf and you don't have to do it yourself. But they would also, um, they had a thing where they would strap you into a chair and they would shackle you, you know, around the ankles and around, around the wrist. You were sitting in the chair and they would have an iron device around your neck. They could tighten until eventually they either just straight out broke your neck or just suffocated you out. Yeah. And so that was, that was Manuel's fate. Um, however, <laughs> his bizarre defense did lead to a stale of his execution twice. The Spanish Minister of Justice took his case, because it was so bizarre, to Queen Isabella II, who personally commuted his death sentence. No shit. So it went all the way, kind of, I guess, at that time to the top. All the way to the top. Queen Isabella II. And there's also a physician, a psychiatrist, an early psychiatrist, I believe, uh, named Dr. Phillips, who wanted to keep this fellow alive for research purposes. And he believed that he could cure Manuel from his werewolfism slash lycanthropy through hypnosis. Which at that time, I guess, was hypnosis kind of getting more traction as a as form, or was it had, had it been around for a while? I can't say about Spain in the mid-19th century, but you know all that stuff was really taken off in Western Europe at large and the United States. Mesmerism, hypnotism, all that kind of garbage um, was kind of a thing. Um, so this guy may have been practicing some, I mean, sideline, but maybe legit medicine for his time. And and sorry, what time period did you say that this was occurring in? Um, this was, let's see, 1853. Which is interesting because you remember our first episode, The Bell Witch, mm-hmm. it speaks of mesmerism. So it shows how the potential for yeah. mesmerism was showing up in all these different places. And it's kind of spreading it. You know, I know information was still traveling fairly okay, but not nearly like it is now. Sure. But for mesmerism to be popping up in, in multiple areas around that time period kind of gives some credence to the foothold it had. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was um, you know, edgy science at the time, but it was a thing. So this, this Dr. Phillips um, tried to cure him with mesmerism and hypnotism, but unfortunately, Emmanuel died soon after in prison. He was imprisoned and kept alive. He was not executed at the time, but died soon after. It's a conspiracy theory that people probably took him out in prison because of his heinous crimes and because he was such a such a weirdo. Um, but it's not there's no official record of how he died. Simply that he died in prison, <clears throat> Jeffrey Epstein. Right. And that you know, and that's the thing for me too, is as weird as this guy was on the outside, you can only imagine how weird he was in captivity. Well plus, you know, the other prisoners would have I mean, this was a sensational trial for its time, you know, Spain's first serial killer, dude claims to be a werewolf. 
uh, murdered all these hapless victims up in the woods and uh, mutilated their bodies, maybe fed on them. Made them into soap. Made them into soap. The four murders he got off from were like maybe couldn't be argued they were human because you could argue they were, you know, destroyed by animals. But the other ones, the other nine he went down for were clearly manufactured. They were clearly man-made wounds and corpses that had been, oh, I'm struggling for language here, but, you know, processed by human hands in their mutilation, death, dismemberment, and so on. Now, the court case was over 2,000 pages in length, collected into five volumes, and entitled in Spanish, Lycantropia. We come full circle. Yeah, I know we're we're back to the uh, the origins and everything. I wonder if that was as far as well, I guess in that time period that was probably not the first time lycanthropy was was officially given a name. But right, I mean, as we saw in in the previous episode leading up to this one, you know, lycanthropy is an ancient term. It's gone around whether it's a, a curse or a disease or some act that you willingly participate in through some magical device, um, the, the term is known. And so they knowingly in 1853, you know, named this court case like Cantropia. But it's really interesting to see. I mean, you know, I guess even at that time, there was still quite a bit of mingling between magic and the actual state. Mm-hmm. But for them to actually write down this case in official court records right, as being lycanthropy yeah. is pretty fascinating. I mean, it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, and we're talking 1853, you know, that's not that long ago. No, historically relatively speaking. speaking, no, it's not. That's recent as, you know, the lead up to the Civil War in the United States and the policy, you know, developed by Henry Clay in, in, in here in Kentucky that, you know, each each state would be slave and then we'd have a free one. And then we'd have, you know, the Great Compromise and all that stuff. It's as recently as that, actually a little bit later, three years later than that. So we're, we're talking about stuff that's recent history, you know, looking at the scope of things. I mean, it, it's kind of fascinating when you think about it like that, because... You know, when I hear these tales, I'm thinking 1600s, you know, kind of like, mm-hmm. like some Peter Stube mm-hmm. era. But, I mean, it's, it's wild to think that that stuff was occurring really even, like you said, not that long ago. Right. Well, I mean, these old folk beliefs, you know, they, they carry on much longer than you would care to think of in, in the rural places like this. Again, he was operating in the mountainous zones. Um, I mean, his job, or the job that he took on at least— was you know, helping people get through these wild areas. So Lord knows what they believed in, in those places. I mean, look at Appalachia today, right? I mean, we still have plenty of folk stuff going on there. So it's not surprising at all that this is, is as recent as 1853. And, and again, speaking back to the first episode where, like, how do you define what a werewolf is, I still believe that this was people's attempts going backwards in time to try to explain incidents that they couldn't couldn't wrap their minds around. They couldn't get their heads around the idea that somebody would murder and feed on children. Yeah, I mean, severely I mean, sick individuals. Yeah, for like, sure. I can't deal with that right now, sitting here talking to you about it. I'm like, what the... <laughs> yeah, like, like what, what has to be wired so poorly in your brain? Right, and that, that can't be something of this world, can it? I mean, I Are don't people, know. Can people reach such a state of depravity and, and brokenness that they would eat children? I fully believe so. Well, I mean, scientifically, yes, yeah. we know that now that that's a thing. You can actually get that far along. But, you know, in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, that was a hard concept. And even now we, we wrestle with it when we know that, OK, there's enough evidence to show that people can get that sick. I mean, you know, you look at Elizabeth Bathory, which we'll do another episode on that. Yeah. I mean, she bathed in the blood of children. Right. So to, she was going to prolong bad. her life. Right. Yeah. That was the thing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this isn't even that big of a step from from that. 
Yeah, and these guys at least were just hungry. <laughs> but anyway, you know, if you think about werewolves, you think about it, it's, this, it's this crazy mythology from Western Europe that's just, just mind-bogglingly stupid to our modern eyes. But if you try to, like, break it out and then drill down and really think about it, it's just people trying to deal with horrendous crimes and how people can get to such a bizarre state that they would perpetrate these these horrendous crimes and trying to assign names for it. I mean, you know, in modern days, maybe we say things like road rage. Yeah, I think this is significantly worse than road rage, though. Oh, absolutely. But you've seen those videos on YouTube, right, where people just, they have a psychotic break. Yeah. And they, they, they absolutely will do anything in that moment. They'll endanger themselves. They'll, they'll endanger anyone around them because they're so out of their daggum mind. It's just a pure berserker mode. Right. Is kind of what it is. And I mean, go to Walmart. That, yes. <laughs> that that inspires. I'm being a bit facetious, but still. Or like being stuck behind somebody who's a slow walker. You stick me behind somebody who walks slow. Well, you're hitting close to home there, Zach. In a public place. <clears throat> I yes. am just, I am overcome with the rage to like, just to bite them. Yeah. Just, just to end them. And I don't know why. It's not inconveniencing my day that much, but it's just something about that. It just drives me insane. Yeah. So don't. You know, dear listeners, don't dismiss werewolfism as some crazy mythology or some crazy superstition, maybe, from ancient times. It, it's just evolved and it's grown, as we've seen. All these myths have morphed and, like, wrapped themselves into each other, become this mythology that we have today that we play with in horror movies and whatnot. But there, there is truth in it. Um, yeah, okay, baby, people aren't actually changing into freaking wolves, but how else would you explain this behavior? Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't. Maybe I'm being too philosophical for good company right now, but I don't. I'm, I don't think anyone's ever described me as good company. But. <laughs> oh, you no. mean the people listening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but crazy is out there. Un, un understandable crazy is out there, and it's something that these people were dealing with at the time. Well, guys, thank you for joining us today on this tale of disgusting tale. You're of, welcome. Of werewolves and eating people and crime. Something else special that we're gonna do for this episode and for the podcast is we're actually doing a giveaway with this episode. A what? We are giving away a replica Aztec death whistle. <laughs> and if you're not sure what that is, it's a little skull whistle drudged up from the depths of hell. Okay. That sounds like a human screaming when you blow into it. Stick that under your Christmas tree. Exactly. It's the perfect gift for everybody, especially if there's somebody who doesn't you don't like who has children, give this to them. It's <laughs> or <pets>. perfect. <laughs> or pets. So it sounds a little something like this. Oh, dear. Well, isn't that just fucking awful? I'll sleep better tonight. Thank you very much. So the way that you win this is you have to go to our page on Facebook. You have to like the page. You have to submit the keyword from this episode. And the keyword for this episode is shovel. Makes sense. Gravedigger, shovel. Thought it'd be kind of fun. So you'll send that to us on our Facebook page, and you will be entered into a drawing to win the Aztec Death Whistle. So just message us the word shuffle. Yeah. So, so that I understand, shovel, um, like the page, share the page. Yeah, you can. Yeah, share the page, like the page, share the page, and send us this keyword of shovel. Okay. To our Facebook page for. It. Okay. Can I win? Well, no. You're part of the podcast. Doesn't well, help us if well, you win. I didn't know anything about this Aztec death whistle. Okay, I'm totally lying. I totally knew about the Aztec death whistle, but I want one. Uh, well, we'll get you. We'll get you one. We'll we'll get you one for Christmas. Instant hit go. at parties. Oh, yeah. Everyone loves it. There's no way that's annoying at all or anybody would not want to talk to you after playing that for a good 20 minutes. Take one to your next bar mitzvah. 
Yeah, or you know, just on a Monday at work when you walk in just to announce your arrival, just hey. a few blasts of the death whistle and people know you're there. Get off the elevator and hell, when you get on the elevator, that'll give everyone <laughs> off the elevator. Social distancing won't be a problem. No, if you not have with, your own Aztec death whistle. Not with this thing. All right, guys. We'll hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to participate in the giveaway contest, and we will talk to you next time with another chilling tale.